You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Linda's clock was so old-fashioned it gave a little wheeze before its alarm went off. As usual, she hit the button before the ring started, although this morning she was nowhere near sleep when it wheezed. She had managed a few hours of unconsciousness after Gordon's soothing, but, but when he got up for his run, the whirring of her mind, which equally old-fashioned seemed to have gears instead of silicon chips, started up again. Career day? What was she thinking? Just a year ago, her life had been so easy. Sure, the elementary school had its problems, but at least she had an experienced staff, community support, and children that memory tinted as sweetly innocent. And then the city's busybody and chief, Senora Rodriguez, had walked through the principal's door and pronounced the words, Guadalupe Middle School, causing Linda to cower behind her desk, as if wood or metal or anything short of a loaded gun might be an effective defense against Senora Rodriguez. Lawyer R. King is the best-selling author of 14 Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes mysteries, five contemporary novels featuring Kate Martinelli, the Stuyvesant and Grey novels Touchstone and The Bones of Paris, and the acclaimed A Darker Place, Folly, which I have a special place in my heart for, Califia's Daughter, and Keeping Watch. Her new novel is Lockdown. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Thank you, Rick. This is a fascinating novel, and one of the things that I thought, in retrospect, as I read this, was the many, many ways that you can create tension in a novel, and the tension with this novel starts with the title. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing like the title lockdown and a picture of a school on the cover that makes you think, oh dear. (laughs) Which is great, because we know from the very beginning kind of what's going to happen, but we don't know any of the particulars. And there's, you have a, create a great cast of characters here, and you also bring in some familiar people from uh, some of your previous work. Yes, there's various short stories that go into this. Um, I wrote, there were originally six of them, and a couple of them have, have faded until there's only a vestige of them that you have to know the stories well to <laughs> see them. But... Um, As I was writing these various short stories over a period of years, I knew that they were somehow linked. Um, Nobody else knew, and certainly not my editor, but they they form, in effect, the backstories of the characters that come come together at uh, Guadalupe Middle School for a career day. I I really enjoyed those backstories and the way you worked them into the novel. Um, As you were accumulating these backstories over the years, how how much did you know that they fitted fitted together, and did you have any idea of where they were going to line up? Um, I didn't know how they were together. No, I did know that um, that they all were linked in some way. Partly because they kind of were set in a similar situation. They all had to do with kids in mm. some way. Um, the the Linda Gordon story, uh, which was originally called The Salt Pond, 
that probably was the furthest away, both geographically, <laughs> um, chronologically, and um, from this town of um, San Felipe, which is a sort of thinly disguised Watsonville, California. <laughs> um, but but I knew that she was going to come back to a place closer to home. And then um, the various other stories is one with a woman who is a um, a woman's a girl's basketball coach at a middle school. There's another story about middle school students. There's a story called Paleta Man, which was a nominee for the Edgar short story the year it came out. Mm. Okay. Um, and that one is about a, um, a a man who sells paletas, uh, ice creams or popsicles, in the kind of Watsonville area. So these stories are were all linked in my head in some way. And then I realized that the way they came together was a career day. Um, I don't know if you've ever done one, but they they bring together the most disparate group of individuals to talk about their jobs. Um, a fireman, a, um, a nurse, a dental hygienist, an architect, uh, the odd writer who, um, who tries to tell students that really you don't want to become a writer because there's no money in it. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they all descend on the school out of um, the, the four corners of the earth. They come, come focusing in on this one school. Um, so that in addition to the school community, which is a place with roots in all directions, you also have these these visitors for the day who bring in their own backstories. So I, I thought that would be a really fascinating um, way of looking at, uh, at community. That's, I think, what this book is about in many ways, is about how diverse any community is simply by virtue of the types of personalities who inhabit it, regardless of where they came from, people are just different. <laughs> and yeah. You don't need any other thing else. I know. And it, I mean, this this book has been tricky from the beginning because I'm a crime writer, so I write about mysteries and crimes. And the book has to be some kind of suspense because if you have a book that takes place in one day, uh, it doesn't give you a lot of scope for a mystery story in the classic detective sense. It has to be a thriller by definition. If, mm -hmm. it's, a, if it's a limited period of time, you, you have to structure it as a thriller. So given, given those um, guidelines, I more or less was forced into bringing, basically bringing a gun onto campus, which yeah. is, you find that out at the very beginning be, the pre-dawn section of the book is that there's a gun coming to campus. You don't know who or why or if anyone got shot or if it's a play gun or if it's uh, you know made of chocolate or what. It's a Chekhovian gun. There is a <laughs> Chekhovian gun sitting on, sitting on a mantelpiece somewhere. And um, the, the problem with that has been that how do you talk about this book without saying this is about a school shooting because it's really not. It's about a school community mm -hmm. and a gun. Um, so I've had a number of people already say to me, well, I, I don't think I could read a book about a, you know, a story that puts kids in jeopardy that way. And I say, it's not quite that simple. 
I mean, because the, the kids in this story are the respondents to the mm. threat as well as possible threat itself. It is a thriller. You don't know who's bringing that gun until the, the very end. You don't know who's going to get hurt until the very end. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of writer who, who, who just, <laughs> as, it, as it were, shoots kids. <laughs> it's just not my kind of thing. But I am the kind of writer that writes about um, kids taking their own agency. Mm. Um, kids and their own um, their own impulses, their own backgrounds, and the the way that they um, not only come up against each other but bond together in fascinating patterns. I think that the uh, the variety of characters that you have in here is really interesting. And one of the things that I noticed. Obviously, right off the bat, you changed your style for this pretty seriously. Oh, yeah. you, this is yeah. short chapters. This, this is real page turning. This must have been uh, something. Was it a trauma for you to write in that style? It it was the demands of the of the particular book. Because mm. if I started with, as I said, these six different short stories, as soon as I began to think of ways of putting them together. Um, in an overall narrative arc, I realized that w unless I were doing something like just dumping in backstory, mm -hmm. okay, you go along a little ways and then here's this huge load of backstory that you have to dig your way through and, and then you come out of that and then go into another one. And, I, I, you know, that's, that's so tedious. I'm sorry. I just am not into that. Um, so... It needed to it needed to be formed out of um, smaller slices of narrative, and the the image that occurs early in the book of the mosaic in the school mm -hmm. is the kind of paradigm I was working towards. The school has an entranceway arch that has a mosaic built into it, and it is a a, a a sort of picture of the school buildings itself and some of the people who were at the school however many decades ago when the mosaic was built. And various people reflect on it, various people threaten to put um, graffiti across it, various people um, look at it and think how like the school it is. But it's very much the way I was writing the book. Um, the kinds of patterns you can form out of small pieces of story. And because I'm also one of those people, I'm, I'm bad with names and I'm terrible. I'm a fast reader, so I, I personally tend to dislike books that have lots of characters. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to write one that had 800 characters that you couldn't keep track of. <laughs> However, this is a book about a school community, so you have to have a number of characters involved in it. And, and so... What I, what I found myself doing with the story was writing to patterns. Hmm. Um, you have the first section of the book has um, before dawn. It's the things that are going on during the night. And one person is sleeping and one person is dreaming and one person is sneaking up with a spray paint can to do graffiti. Um, and another person is taking off for a morning run before dawn. 
and the cop is driving through the dark city. Um, then you have the, the first section after, after sunrise, and the theme there is coffee. You have one person waiting for coffee and one person wondering if her husband's left her coffee and another person who's using yesterday's coffee to polish his shoes. And, and so you tend to feel that these lives are tied together by these sort of unexpected threads, threads being another theme that appears in the book. Right, threads versus the mosaic. And I thought yeah. that was a really interesting collision of imageries, especially in terms of storytelling. Threads is a more natural analog for storytelling mm -hmm. since it carries through, whereas a mosaic is like the story that kind of comes together only when you see all the pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of, the, one of the stories that forms the background of lockdown is... Um, it's one called Weaving the Dark. Mm. That was about a, a woman who is going blind from glaucoma, and yet she is a weaver, and how this affects her life, her art, um, and, and the crime that she comes across on her, on her property. Um, and, and although that particular character got left out, mostly... <laughs> Mostly because her story had to do with illegal marijuana growth, and that really is not a very cutting-edge crime anymore. <laughs> not and in well, California. Yeah, yeah. When I wrote it, it was, you know, a valid, a valid backstory for a for a mystery, but not not so much now. Mm. However, I have this uh, this Weaver as one of the characters coming to school on career day, and so that is uh, that is the sort of introduction of the idea of threads, threads weaving together. I, for me, was, I think perhaps my favorite moment in this book was when we got to see one of a character we've seen before, <laughs> Brother Erasmus. I, I you can have guess. so much fun with Brother Erasmus Brother and Erasmus. so many readers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, that was a story that I wrote for Mike Connolly, a collection mm -hmm. called The Blue Religion. Um, and the, the cop in this small town um, meets... Uh, character who appeared in the second of the Kate Martinelli books to play the fool. Brother Erasmus is a, a holy fool, mm -hmm. which is, uh, oddly enough, I, I did my bachelor's thesis on it. <laughs> it's amazing how often a writer finds herself with characters that reflect what she's done in previous lives. <laughs> but yeah, Brother Erasmus is a holy fool, um, and he appears in in this thinly disguised, as I say, Central Coast town um, that resembles Watsonville in, in many ways. And, uh, and, and he appears in this book um, more or less as a way of allowing the kids to do what they want without being put into danger. So, mm. I don't I said, I don't really like to put kids in danger. I don't like kids living in caves by themselves, thanks. This novel is also an examination of the many ways in which we can create violence and many reasons for which we can create violence. <laughs> there are, you can bring it in from the military, you can import it, we can have our own local <laughs> hatched violence, we can... Generated digitally, we are a culture that is just 
wonderful at creating new means for uh, inspiring violence. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's when you're dealing with a town, you know, a central coast town of forty or fifty thousand. Obviously, you have plenty of opportunities for homegrown threat. You have gangs. You have domestic threat. You have, um, y you know, any kind of drug-related. But it's also a large enough town to be the focus for a more outside force. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of those in the book that, um, that wander in and out. <clears throat> how much of a threat are they? And you have to decide as you go along, is this going to be one of those times when a small town explodes into international headlines, which indeed does, does happen from time to time? For a variety and, of reasons. And I think you do a great job of, like, in terms of mystery and suspense, I, I will confess I was guessing badly up to, up to the final page. Oh, good. Okay. And, and <clears throat> this is something else I think this book excels at. The balance of suspense is to keep is very difficult. On one side, if you are not, if it's not tension or suspense-filled enough, you're going, okay, well, is something going to happen or maybe something's going to happen down there and I'll get to it. On the other hand, if... It's just so fraught where you're here at the top of the slope and you're already sliding down and you know that 90 pages later, you're going to get to the bottom. <laughs> you just think, sometimes you just think, okay, well, either I'm just going to sit here and force read these pages or I'm just going to look ahead and then I'll go back and enjoy the experience. You provide the perfect balance. I don't think I've ever read a book as well put on the wind you up scale. That's that's lovely to hear. Uh, obviously, it's it's something that I worked at a lot, mm. and it's one of the one of the real advantages of having a first rate editor. Mm. Um, the reason that I am with the publisher I am and have been there for a number of years is because I have an editor whose eye is so very good for things like character and timing. Um, but I, I think it may also have to do with the fact that I'm one of those people who gets impatient with thrillers. Mm -hmm. I won't say I don't like thrillers, but I, I don't like the complete emphasis on, um, on emotion. I mean, mm -hmm. the th a thriller is all about thrill. It's mm -hmm. all about the emotion. And you tend to overlook the character because you're aiming for the, the final scenes. Exactly. Which is, is fine if that's what you're wanting, but I never find that really adequate in a, as a reader. Mm -hmm. um, I was really interested. I, every, this is a book where no matter what character came up who, and they're, you know, kind of revolved through them, I liked them all. I wanted to read them all. <laughs> and not just because I wanted to find out what happened, because I liked being with them. Even the ones that you suspect from the beginning oh, yes. are not, not totally nice guys, which is, is one of the rules of good crime, isn't it? That mm -hmm. you have to have sympathy with your villain. If you have a villain who's just two-dimensional and has a label underneath him saying bad guy, 
Um, you know, it makes for a fine piece of machinery, but it's not a very human story. Mm. Because in any mystery, in any crime book, the villain is the hero in his own eyes, or her own eyes. And you have to, you have to write that character, making that real. Mm -hmm. You have to make the reader feel that person's justification, that person's righteousness, um, how that person could have been the hero with a slightly different twist somewhere back along the path. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those tricky things when you're writing characters is the balance between the good and bad. And often in, in, in this book, there's at least three characters that start out both. I mm -hmm. mean, you, when you read a number of chapters for the three characters, you, you could see that they could end up having that gun in their hands or the other side of the thing. Exactly, and that's what makes this book so thrilling because you have sympathy for characters that you think might be really, really bad, and that makes you, A, question yourself, you know, <laughs> do I want to be the guy who lived next door to the serial killer for 10 years and never knew anything? Well, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think we need to, you know, put... Put a blurb on the back of it saying, Lori King, she messes with your head. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> uh, I was particularly thrilled to see the Papua New Guinea, uh, the, 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 salt, <laughs> the salt field, uh, the, the, the salt flat story, in, in part because I actually had uh, the place that I rented in uh, Soquel before I came to here uh, was the landlords had left the house to rent because they were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Yeah, I was there in the um, the late 70s. I mm. went there on my rather extended honeymoon. Doesn't, doesn't everyone go to Highland Papua New Guinea for their honeymoon? I mean, come on. Yes, uh, sort of a typical academic marriage of, well, I have a... I have a sabbatical year scheduled. You don't mind coming with me, do you, dear? <laughs> so, yeah. Never mind the cannibals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we ended. Well, they were mostly Christians by then. So it was fun. But yeah, we. It was. I mean, I was a fast. I was. I was fascinated by it. It was my first real experience of a completely foreign country. And in fact, there is a guy that we met up there who, who is the basis of Gordon. I, I love Gordon. He's a great guy. Yeah. he's Well, you meet people like Gordon in all kinds of weird corners of the world. I mean, mm. this, this Brit who sort of ends up in this place. I've met him in Fez. I've met him in India. I've met him in Papua New Guinea. You know, these completely, completely mad Englishmen who just sort of find a home in some peculiar corner of the world and and well you say they're mad but they also seem totally urbane it's like they're living on the corner suburb they are living in some completely wild place that would scare the living bejesus out of every normal people they're just living there <laughs> like it's main street usa yeah yeah i mean doesn't everyone well happily main street usa has caught up with the wildest parts of the <laughs> yeah oh, i think but at this point this is one of the 
portions of this. I mean, that's, I think, in a sense, what this book is about, what we're catching up with. Yeah, yeah, the, the way that these odd corners of the world overlap in the most unexpected ways. I, I think that uh, you do a great job with the kids. Now, I, I can't say I've written it, read everything you've written, but I don't think you de dealt as extensively with kids before in your books. I often have kids in the books. Mm. Um, and I, I think I, this book was a little, I, I had to make certain choices. Mm -hmm. A lot of the language and attitude of these kids mm -hmm. is actually slightly more adult mm -hmm. than, than is strictly realistic. Had I been writing a YA book, I would have shoved it back into Instagram and, you know, much more um, the current kinds of vocabulary and interests. Because um, the threat of that is that it dates it very fast. Right. But I, I, I decided to shove the balance a little bit more towards the older reader. Mm-hmm. Um, just because when I when I did make them really realistic, they began to read as brittle, mm -hmm. and I didn't I didn't like the feel of that. I wanted these kids to be I wanted you to be able to see the adult inside the kid. Well, I think that that's the uh, service of prose. On one hand, I can understand the inclination to portray kids the way they portray themselves, but I mean. Before there was Instagram and all that, that other stuff, I mean, even adults didn't portray themselves the way they're necessarily written in books. That's the, the, the job of the writer is to make other humans comprehensible to the reader who is not even expecting to engage exactly the kind of humans that he might engage with normally. Well, yeah, yeah. Even when it comes down to mm. something as as mundane as writing dialogue, you mm -hmm. want dialogue to feel natural, human, and somewhat jerky, mm -hmm. without making it literally <laughs> on the page as completely detached and jerky as it actually is. If you were to do a literal transcription of the dialogue between even two educated and carefully spoken adults, it it would be unreadable mm -hmm. from all the pauses and interjections and cross hatches and the rest of it. So you have to you have to make the impression without being literal. Why choose the Central Coast in Monterey, Watsonville as your location? I mean, other than you do live here, so you have some familiarity. But would had you considered other settings? Not really. Um, I, I mean, we lived in in the Watsonville area for most of the time that my kids were growing up. Mm. We moved there when my daughter was three and my son was born, mm. and we lived there for fifteen years, so that we they went to the same schools as um, for the for their most of their career, and. Um, and so I knew it intimately as a mechanism, mm -hmm. as how the schools worked mm. and how the, the relationship between the field workers and the people who ran the shops and the cops. And I, I 
I love the Watsonville area. I've always loved it since we first moved there. I now live in Santa Cruz at the north end of the county, which is where the university is, and it's a much more left-wing, and it's much more um, white, left-educated than, than working-class um, Watsonville and Pajaro. But Watsonville is real in a way that Santa Cruz isn't, and I've always, I've always mm. loved that. Well, that would make it, a, uh, in that sense, being more real <laughs> makes it a better setting. But also, too, I think one of the things about this book that's really interesting is it accomplishes the job of all mysteries in terms of having uh, access to all levels of society mm -hmm. and actually a wider access, a more interesting access to the lower levels, to the lower of the lower levels of society, because you're talking about, you know, barrios and children of, of field workers. That's, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, on our economic ladder in America, it doesn't get much lower, but we also have not too far away. And even here in Santa Cruz, we have a lot of high-tech millionaires yeah. too. Yeah. Um, and and a, place like, a place like Watsonville is typical of, I think, a vast amount of the country as mm -hmm. a whole in the last 20 years. Um, and it and it, I think, contributes to the current political situation because people who grew up when small towns were one thing, mm -hmm. that, that is, they were mostly white, they were mostly the same socioeconomic group, they were all people who knew each other, um, that with the changes that have happened in society and jobs and travel um, over the last couple of decades, even small towns in the the sort of so-called flyover states will have, for example, a church that sponsored um, refugees from Ethiopia, or um, Somali a Somali community will start up in a small town, which I find fascinating. This mm. the way that the generosity of heart of these small town people with these utterly foreign and and deeply troubled individuals are welcomed in and found a home um, there isn't that specific community in lockdown but there are individuals so that you have Mina mm -hmm. whose families <clears throat> whose family came from uh, Tehran um, they were kicked out under you know along with the Shah so they are Persian rather than Iranian um, and the kinds of threats that that can bring in the background. Um, but I, but I, I love that kind of mixed community that you find in a place like, um, li like Watsonville, like the Central Coast. One of the characters I thought was most interesting was Nick Clarkson. Mm -hmm. He's a young kid, and he has some issues. Issues. <laughs> that, and uh, and um, end up with him talking with the school psychiatrist, Cassandra Henry, Henry who's a, a wonderful character. You have a lot of fun with her transcriptions. Yeah, yeah, Cass Henry. Um, yeah, Nick was, Nick was an interesting character. And in fact, um, he came about... I was named Artist of the Year in Santa Cruz County in 2006, I think it was. I believe and so. And as my, um, an Artist of the Year normally does, if you're a painter, you do a show, and if you're a poet, you do a reading. And I said, instead of 
doing a reading or talk, doing a, a talk about you know, my books, would they like me to actually write something? Which rather befuddled them because they <laughs> thought, uh, what? <laughs> so I said, yeah, why don't, you, why don't we do a, a live writing? Um, you feed me prompts um, and give me two hours to think about them, and I will then sit down at my laptop. You can plug the laptop into the machines, and I don't want people actually looking over my shoulders as I write. But so what we did was put it in the the Simpkins Center has a they have a conference room on one floor, and then they have a public room nearby, and they put screens up in the public room and chairs so people could every time I hit save it would show the paragraph on the screen, so you could sit there and watch Lori write for two hours. And it it was really fascinating. Boy, um, it's an update on the old Harlan Ellison gig. <laughs> it is the Harlan Ellison gig of writing in the in the bookstore window. But um, I had assumed that I I would write you know a few pages, um, meet up with everyone and talk about the process, and then I would go and finish the story and make huge changes to what I'd written because I don't tend to write. <clears throat> very coherently for a first draft anyway. So I had assumed there'd be these enormous changes. And oddly enough, um, there were almost no changes to the, st- the part that I had done. I had done maybe, I don't know, three, three or 4,000 words in, in the morning. I just straightforward writing. And um, when I finished the rest of the story, it just sat neatly on top of what I had already done, which... Which was, a, which was odd, because I had intended that the whole thing would be a sort of teaching experience of, okay, here's the rubbish first draft, and here's the remainder of it, and here's what she did to the rubbish. for You can look at the editing, and there was very little <laughs> editing, which, which sort of reduced the importance of that section of it. But that's all right. But it was interesting, because that story came about by prompts from, um, I think they were mostly sixth graders. Um, sent in prompts of things like uh, the names of video games and crunchy toys and you know various things that that got me going on the story. The only thing I knew about it was that I wanted to I wanted to write it around that old house, mm-hmm. the Redken house that's on the just off the freeway as you're driving south through Watsonville. It's an eerie looking house, I'll tell you. It's ya. a very eerie looking house, and it was even when I wrote the story, and you know, eleven years ago. Um, so that's where that's where Nick came from. He he was originally called Bradley, but I had I think four different characters with the name <laughs> that started with B, and so I, Bradley and Bonita and someone else all changed their names. <laughs> <laughs> now this is also a book where one of the characters actually, to a certain extent, never actually appears <laughs> in the present, uh, B. Cuomo. Oh, yes, B. And, and this, oh. is a, this is a very interesting uh, plot idea, but also it brings up an interest, the idea of missing people who go missing, because mm-hmm. it's when somebody goes missing, you don't know what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 meet the the presence or rather absence of Bicomo fairly early, mm-hmm. and she continues on through the story as a mystery, mm-hmm. and um, and becomes the focus for 
the community. Because I, th I think it's, it's interesting when you have a traumatic event in a family or in a community, how it can either splinter it or rebuild it. And you see this a lot in, in microcosm with families. If a child goes missing, if a child dies, um, sometimes the family doesn't recover. And other times they, they do. Um, and the question of why and the process of recovery is one that is, uh, has always fascinated me. So that if you have a character such as this, and B disappears three months or so before the events of, of lockdown. And when the book opens, she's still a mystery, but she's been missing so long, it, it's sort of assumed that she is gone. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these decisions of what, what do you do? Do you have a memorial service? Do you, um, you, you know, wh wh at what point do you move on when you have someone missing? Um, and, I mean, there is no answer to that. There's just a decision. Um, so that's, yeah, B, B becomes a major presence in the book by her very absence. Do you think we'll, you'll be writing more about her? <laughs> These questions are... Who, who knows? I mean, I, I never know what I'm going to be writing one year to the next. So um, I, I kind of doubt it. Mm. Um, sometimes I'm struck by inspiration and I, I suddenly realize I have to do something. But I sort of think that B is interesting by her very lack of corporeal identity, as it were. <laughs> Um, yeah. And in fact, in the, in the short story, in the Nick short story, um, there's, it's the, the, the short story itself was a lot more <laughs> woo woo. It, 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 Nick, Nick remained absolutely convinced in the story itself that, that B was sucked into the past. And you do a good job of, of there's there's a, a hint of that in this book as well. And I yeah. thought, wow, is Lori going to go in that direction? Because you do, you do if well, you want, ever want to write that kind of thing, yeah. you're good at it. Well, the, the story itself was mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was fairly clear that, that Nick wasn't nuts that this had happened. But, of course, when you are shaping that kind of backstory into a larger story, it has these odd bits that don't fit in. All of the stories that went into this one, all of the short pieces that went into this one changed. Mm. Um, some of them just grew th shorter. Some of them um, had events within them change. And, uh, you know, in the process of... Because a, a short story is so different from a novel. Oh, yeah. You know, their, their, their emphasis and their pacing and their uh, the, the way they they're told is just so very different mm -hmm. that you 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 can't really just plop it in there and the having that 
parapsychological, as it were, element in the story wasn't right within the novel. Oh, no. But in the short story itself, yeah. Mm. So, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, if uh, it would be interesting for somebody to look at Lockdown and to look at the six stories and how, how the one grew out of the other. Um, I talk a bit about it. I'm doing a series of blogs about Lockdown, mm-hmm. and I talk a bit about it here and there. But, uh, you know, it's hard to talk about it too much without giving too much away. So well, we All of the stories that. are still out there. I mean, you can still get them online, so... Well, this book is a, a, a complete, you know, completely succeeds at being a page turner that also immerses in these great characters. And my other thought after reading this was, boy, I want to see a TV series based around this high school. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could really do it. I mean, you have a bunch of great characters. And, and yeah. I think the tone, what I like, think is that the tone is great because there's a bit of humor. There's a bit of drama. I mean, it's, it has a very realistic tone to it. It it feels to me very like a school life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you get the sense when you walk onto a school, especially a middle school, which, you know, talk about hormones. Um, you, you get a feeling that there are levels of communication going on all around you. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the, you know, you, you still have children on the playground vibe going on at a middle school. Oh, yeah. You also have... Oh God, or do we have a teen pregnancy on middle school? <laughs> so you know, I mean, the middle school is this Im- enormous spectrum of child to adults, and I mean, the difference between a sixth grader and an eighth grader is so enormous. Whoever thought they were good to put them together? Yeah. I don't know, but I, you know, but so um, you know, but this is a the the, the some middle schools are just seventh and eighth grader. This is the sixth, seventh, and eighth. So. I want to talk about Tio, who's another fantastic character. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Tio. So yeah, so tell us about and you do one thing. I will say, great job of introducing the characters. Each time you introduce them, you do a great job of like setting them in our brains. So you go, okay, got that guy. Well, that's, be- that's because I, I find it so hard to remember when I have more than three characters in a book. I think, who are these people? <laughs> but So, yeah, you have to have each, each one when you start. I, I, don't, I don't persist past about the halfway point mm. because I figure about the halfway point, most people are going to have the characters identified enough in their heads that they, they don't need that little touch of a reminder. But, yeah. Yeah, I think that you, especially when you start out and you have, you know, these alternating chapters of different characters, each one needs to be absolutely vivid and distinct. Mm. Um, And each one has to have a name that is (laughs) 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 not mistaken for the others. Um, And and you also have to have certain um, flavors, as it were, that identify each one, and you say, oh, yeah, this is the guy who's been polishing his shoes. Um, oh, yeah, this is the basketball player kid. Um, oh, yeah, this is the kid who was going to tag the school. Um, so, yeah, you, you, have to, you have to have certain reminders without, without the reader knowing that they're being reminded. And... I guess this takes me a little bit back to something you were talking, alluding to earlier about how you 
dialed back uh, the contemporaneous um, teenage dialect, mm-hmm. which I think is is really important because it makes the kids seem more realistic, I think, mm-hmm. by virtue of keeping the language and their thoughts on, focused on things that you know most of us think of most of the time i think that it makes each of these characters more accessible to us and i think i think just in, in general it makes them more realistic as as teenagers i think even to other teenagers reading the book well i suspect that um most of us, whether we are 13 or 63, <clears throat> would be astonished at how other people see us. Mm. I mean, I am, well, I'm 64. And I think of myself as being kind of maybe 40. Mm-hmm. I imagine that if I were 13, I would be astonished to find how people think of me as a kid (laughs) because I would feel grown up. I would feel mature. I would feel like my judgment mattered and my opinions were as of equal importance to anyone else's. Um, So you do that really well for the kids in this book. I just realized that. That's it. That's what does it. That I think that they, they have valid existences and they're not, fragile, shallow, temporary individuals. They take themselves seriously, but not so serious as to be self-important. Well, most of them. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I think that uh, this, you do a good job too of creating the San Felipe and Guadalupe Middle School as characters and locations. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one of the things I like is that though Watsonville is a small town and, and San Felipe is a small town, uh, as you say, small towns have changed. They're, the idea of the kind of what we think of now, what you might think of as a, the classic Stephen King small town where people know each other and there's houses and streets, and you know, that's kind of gone. Yeah. A small town is a town that doesn't have 10 freeways and 15 strip malls, <laughs> three giant malls, and an amusement park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they do have one or two strip malls and a couple of freeways. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's one of, the, one of the differences in modern life is how even a small town is a part of the big town. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I live in Santa Cruz, but I'm part of the Bay Area. Oh, absolutely. Um, especially on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> and and as you say, there's people in in that central coast area um who who whose jobs are over the hill. They mm-hmm. are um, you know, tech millionaires who prefer to drive to work an hour or more in the morning um so they can live in the coast. Now, this book is in some ways very different from some of your Mary Russell books, but I think it preserves, you know, those qualities of having great characters and, and a really interesting plot. So talk about how it is for you to go back and forth between, uh, you know, a historical novel uh, and, and a contemporaneous novel. 
I, I, I've always um, gone back and forth between um, between series. I I tended the early days. I tended to shift between the Russells, which were set in the teens and twenties, and the Martinellis that were modern at the time. They're now they're getting to be historical. <laughs> historical. <laughs> it's scary uh, how set in the eighties. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. Um, because I because I really feel the need for changing where I'm living from one year to the next. Mm. The years that I have written the same thing uh, more than a couple years in a row, I, I begin to get very antsy with the characters. Um, there was one stretch where I did four Russells in a row. And the first two, the first two were getting, were, were linked. Um, they were, they were, the same characters, the same situation. Um, and I had realized as I was writing the second of those two, The God of the Hive, that the the kind of whimsical attitudes of the early Russells had got lost and they had just turned into sort of mystery novels, which I, I wasn't pleased with. I wanted to get back to the whimsicality of the early ones. So I proposed that we write a farce. And so I wrote Pirate King, which is a story about a story. It's a, a movie about a movie about the pirates of Penzance. Um, and it's <laughs> so, really fun. And, and, and so that was a sort of reset button for the whimsy. And mm-hmm. then I did a fourth one in a row in, in order to pick up the series and make it the classic Russell and Holmes adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, set in some exotic land... Um, you know, exotic characters, a puzzle, and all the rest of it. But that being the fourth one in a row, in a row um, it it opens with Russell waking from a, a, a coma with a bad head wound and amnesia. <laughs> so I I sort of took that as a indication that I. I really shouldn't write the same characters too many years in a row because I hurt them. <laughs> don't hurt your <laughs> so, character. So unless I wanted to have parts of Russell chopped off as she goes, maybe two years in running is is about as many in a, in a row as I should do. So, so I, I like to, I like to take time off. Um, and there's certain kinds of stories you cannot tell in the Russell world. There's certain because it is basically whimsy mm-hmm. that that series. Um, there's serious uh, themes that are addressed, but the you know it's about a young girl who becomes the apprentice and partner of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, how serious can you get, Rick? <laughs> Come on now. So. Um, you know, I so anyway, I, I I tended even from the beginning to alternate books, and this one, because it was so different, uh, I I really enjoyed writing because I really could get into the craft of writing. How do you shape a story that is not like any story you've done before? Um, you got the heck into it. It's really exciting. Now, um, the if I'm not mistaken, the curse of Sherlock Holmes' heirs, or um, as it were, Conan Doyle's heirs, has has that been lifted yet? I, uh... <laughs> it's actually the estate, not yeah. the heirs. There's okay. a big difference. Okay. Um, yeah, they, the the Conan Doyle estate 
basically um, protested one of the series that Les Klinger and I did of um, anthologies that various writers have were invited to write a story inspired by the Sherlock Holmes canon. Mm-hmm. And um, the first publisher um, basically bought them off by buying their rights, which we had protested and they did anyway. The second publisher, we had changed after the first one, and they said, um, we're not sure we can go ahead with this because the Conan Doyle estate popped up and threatened to, um, to, to clamp a copyright violation down, which therefore freezes everything on Amazon and all the rest. So, so my co-editor, Les Klinger, took them to court um, and said, you have no right to claim copyright on the 51st stories. Um, the, the later stories, there's 10 stories that were published after the copyright date. Mm-hmm. And they are, yes, those are still under copyright, no argument. But the first 50, the four novels and um, the rest of the short stories, are in the public domain. And the estate said no. Um, the court decision went Les's way. I was not a registered person on that on that court case, but it was his. Um, they the the estate appealed. The appellate court had a very interesting um, judgment that Judge Posner of the um, Ninth Court of Appeals in Chicago wrote, which is online. If you want it, you you can look at the. The um, website is called Free Sherlock, <laughs> and um, and he said he used the word extortion in there. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, yeah that was a uses that. that's fairly a strongly worded thing. They appealed it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, "Nope, Judge Posner's right." So yes, all of the first fifty stories are clearly in the public domain. So that unless you have a character or a situation that is distinctly linked to the last 10 stories, all of which are going out of copyright over the next few years, um, you can write anything to do with Sherlock Holmes you want. Now, the question is, will they be uh, able to make movies of your books or TV series? I th- yeah. uh, these days, we're, yeah. we're waiting for Amazon, Hulu. I mean... Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, we have uh, the... the Beekeeper's Apprentice and O Jerusalem are both under option to a British company. Oh, yay. So they they haven't moved past, past the option stage. They are talking to many people about many things that occasionally they even let me know. But it is it is <laughs> under under option, yeah. I've been speaking with Lori King. Her new novel is Lockdown. Thank you for joining me, Lori. My pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>